All right, everybody, we got some music. <laughs> we will see how that plays. Hope you enjoy it. Um, welcome to the Wayward Podcast. If that name sounds a little bit strange to you since the other previous episodes, that is because it is. Um, like I said, I've been in an experimental mode here, and one of the things that uh, one of the changes, one of the one of the first changes that I decided to make was kind of making an adjustment to the name. Uh, I enjoyed the previous name, you know, uh, it was very near and dear to my heart, but ultimately, uh, wayward just kind of captures what I am trying, uh, to, or intending to accomplish here. I think it, uh, it's more concise, it's shorter, it's, uh, more to the point, and I don't really think, uh, anything is lost in the, uh, the name change, so, um, I might do uh, a future discussion on uh, the thoughts that kind of went into it, but uh, uh, there it is for right now. So welcome to the Wayward Podcast, where there is a word, there's a way. So on our previous episode, we examined the Red Sea story when God delivered the Israelites and the point that we focused on in that episode was how God's salvation of Israel laid the foundation that would enable Israel to trust God. So as I've said before at uh, the beginning of this Trusting God series, that you can't trust God until you see how God is trustworthy. And you can't see how God is trustworthy until you have an event that proves he is trustworthy. So now that we've had that event at the Red Sea, today we're going to stroll back through that story and other parts of Genesis and Exodus to try and kind of explore the ways in which this salvation event demonstrates how God is trustworthy. And I've come up with about seven ways or markers that shows how this salvation event demonstrates God's trustworthiness. Now, of course, there might be more to that in the text, but I'm sure. But we're going to look at these seven today. So when, when we look at the entire salvation event, all the way from the moment that God hears the cries of Israel in Egypt to the moment where they are delivered in the Red Sea, how do all of these events fit into this framework that demonstrates God's trustworthiness? A first way is that this salvation event reaffirms God's 500-year-old covenant commitment with Abraham. Now, we see this near the beginning of Exodus when Israel is in slavery and they're crying out to God and God hears them in slavery. And the text says in Exodus chapter 2, verse 24, that God remembers the covenant he made with Abraham. And as you might recall, the, uh, that covenant was made with Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 15. In Genesis 12, God calls Abraham or Abram, but it isn't until chapter 15 where God actually makes the covenant with Abraham. And at the time of that covenant, uh, when that covenant was made, God said to Abraham that 
the time was not yet ripe for certain nations to reach judgment levels of their wickedness. And so until that time, uh, Abraham's descendants were going to spend generations in Egypt. Now, at the end of Exodus 2, uh, we've kind of reached that moment after all those years have gone by and a lot has happened. Like Israel Israel uh, has been spending a lot of that time in slavery. And at the end of chapter two, chapter 2 in Exodus, God, when God hears the cries of the Israelites in slavery, God remembers. And what the text helps show us is that even after 500 years, that covenant is still binding. God still takes that covenant seriously. And one of the things that makes this extra special is that in uh, in, in, in these East, ancient Eastern times, the relationship between human beings and uh, their local gods or their patron deities was upheld by the human beings who would cater to these patron deities by making promises or deals or bargains with the deities. They would pledge their support or their allegiance, or they would promise to sacrifice animals or maybe food, or maybe sacrifice even children to a deity if they would only make it rain or grow their crops or yield a good harvest or make their wives fertile or let them defeat an enemy. So it was basically up to the human being to secure the deity's patronage. In a way, it's a, a kind of a lot like sponsorship. You know, get the deity sponsorship to sponsor you. You know, it's like you make an offering, you get the deity to sponsor you and protect you. You know, that kind of idea. But what the Lord does in Genesis by coming to Abraham and calling Abraham to follow him, the Lord makes the covenant. God approaches and calls the human. So here... This relationship between God and the human originates with God. And the whole terms of the agreement of the covenant depend mostly on God and not on what the human really does. And so it's like an early expression of grace. And the idea that this covenant relationship with the human is still binding after 500 years for these times, that is just incredible because a lot of these patron deities, they were kind of understood by their cultures to be quite uh, fickle or temperamental or shifty, uh, seeming to protect only the highest bidder or the one with the best offering. Again, kind of a lot like sponsorships, you know. But the Lord God, even after 500 years, he is not fickle. He is not temperamental. He is not indifferent. He is, even now, focused on the family that he made a covenant relationship with way back when. So, really, this salvation event of God delivering Israel just wonderfully reaffirms God's covenant commitment with Abraham. It confirms that the covenant, that this covenant, it's not over. It is only just 
beginning. So, a second marker of God's trustworthiness is this salvation event emphasizes God's priority for the covenant community. In Exodus chapter 6, verse 7, right before the plagues begin, the Lord tells Moses that I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. And throughout all the plagues that God does in Egypt, there, there are several moments where Moses repeats to Pharaoh that God is making a distinction between the Egyptians and his people. And so it's not just special individuals whose offerings or talents or status has caught the deity's eye. It's the idea that the covenant relationship includes an entire community of people of all ages. Even the young little kids, like in this culture, those young little kids, you know, or, you know, a lot of the other cultures around this time, uh, it was a possibility for those kids to be used in child sacrifice. Or it was also a possibility for the elderly to be kind of uh, pushed to the side. But not in this relationship with God and his people. It was going to be people of all ages, men and women and children and their herds and flocks. So it's not so much the idea of people, it's these people, God's people, the people who belong to him, who he, who, who God is going to deliver, protect, and covenant with. They, this, uh, they are God's priority. This community is God's priority. A third marker is that this salvation event marks a liberating new chapter in God's covenant chronicle. And by this point, the entire story is already qualifying as a saga or an epic. But when you look at the entire scope of the Bible, this saga is only just beginning. But at this point in the story, um, I'm not sure the Israelites here, and in this context, I'm not sure if they were sure of what was going on in terms of a relationship with God. Like they knew that Father Abraham and Isaac and Jacob had a covenant relationship with God, and they knew that there was this promise that remained for them, but I'm not sure that they in, that they were intimately clued in to what was taking shape in this story, or where this story was going, or what their role in that story was going to be exactly. And as the story unfolded, and they witnessed the plagues, and then the deliverance, and then the Red Sea, it was just like this story is, they were able to see that this story is going somewhere. So for a people who have been spending generations in Egypt, in slavery, crying out to God, this whole event is revealing an exciting new chapter. And not just exciting, but liberating. It's a chapter that just brings so much eagerness and excitement and anticipation for what is coming next. So why does this why does this make God trustworthy? 
Because from a storytelling point of view, it's like knowing that your God is taking you somewhere. That God is not just leaving you in limbo, but that there's actually a plot that is unfolding for you, for your own good, that inclines the people to see that this is not just chaos. There is actually structure to where God is taking this relationship. And in fact, it's it helps clarify that God is authoring this relationship. He is, he, it's like God is revealing the narrative that is shaping where they go from here. And so that's kind of uh, to know that you are a, that you are a privileged character in that story, in the story of your divine author or divine narrator, uh, instills a sense of trust in the author. For a fourth marker, this salvation event establishes God's character as uniquely other from that of the rulers, cultures, and gods of the nations. We've already talked a little bit about how God is different from the other gods of the nations, but in terms of rulers, you see how God sets himself apart as different from Pharaoh. Like his hard-heartedness, for example, Pharaoh, uh, the king of Egypt, had so many different moments or so many different opportunities to release the Israelites from slavery. But his fluctuating heart, it was always like a fluctuating level of hardness. You know, it's like there were some times where he would kind of um, be open to letting them go, but it was really revealed just to be falsehood. And so there, it was just a like different degrees of hard-heartedness. And uh, because of this, he kept, ref- ultimately, he kept refusing to let Israel go. And one of the side effects of that refusal was just how much it badly impacted the pe- his own people, the people of Egypt. Pharaoh's hard heart was causing pain and suffering to his own people and their own way of life and or ability to live or quality of life. And he was indifferent to it. Like, if you look at the final plague, uh, when Egypt's uh, firstborn are dying at midnight, the text says that Pharaoh was sleeping. And <laughs> he'd been... He'd been warned by Moses, who by that point had a pretty good track record. And, uh, um, but even, uh, even though he had been warned, even though uh, he had been uh, told some pretty, by credi- some pretty credible information from a pretty credible source, even then, uh, with Egypt's uh, lives and souls on the line, Pharaoh went to sleep. And so he was indifferent to it, uh, to both the Israelite slaves, and to his own Egyptian people. So now contrast that with how God, the Lord God's character protects his people. How God makes a distinction and how God steps in and takes powerfully active steps to deliver his people out of Egypt. So there's this clear sense already that this God has a character that is uniquely different, uniquely 
other from what Egypt's kings and other other kings of the nations are used to. It makes it distinguishes God. It sets God apart. Sometimes we're kind of used to thinking to ourselves like all all kings and rulers are the same because they all kind of employed the same tactics or they all seem to demonstrate the same kind of uh yeah, tactics or uh or character, but God here kind of shows himself. God sh- in this in this story, God shows himself as one who goes to great lengths to protect his people. And that instills an ability to trust. A fifth marker is that this salvation event clarifies God's conquering judgment upon the powers that enslave, exploit, marginalize, and suppress the poor. Egypt's oppression, it goes all the way back to when a particular pharaoh at the beginning of Exodus first began to entertain ideas of what to do with Israel. He did not know about the story of Joseph and how Joseph saved Egypt. And so this pharaoh was an ignorant king. He was also looking for glory and power, wanting to build Egypt into like uh, this great uh, state. And he created a story or a narrative that depicted the Israelites as these people who were going to rise up and plot with their enemies to overthrow them. And he used that narrative to justify or rationalizing putting Israel into slavery. And so from there on, we we see how later on Pharaoh instituted a population control by ordering the firstborn male babies thrown into the Nile River. And, of course, there were the taskmasters who cruelly supervised all the hard labor. And later on, when Moses told Pharaoh to let the people go repeatedly, um, Pharaoh instead ordered that the bricks be made without straw, which was both cruel and just petty and arrogant. So, you can see how willing these kings, these Egyptian kings were, how willing they were to exploit and oppress these people. How easily they were able to just enslave and exploit and suspend their freedoms or undercut them or make sure that they couldn't get ahead or institute policies and protocols that kept them marginalized or kept them in slavery. So. When God comes in, yes, the plagues are meant to force Pharaoh to eventually release them. But in another sense, the plagues are God's works of judgment upon Egypt. Judgment upon their economy, judgment upon their agriculture, judgment upon their wealth and their prestige and their sense of power, and finally even judgment over life itself. And just seeing how God exacts his wrath and the magnificently scary lengths God goes to to judge exploitation 
uh, and marginalizing activities shows you what kind of a God we are dealing with here. This is not a God who tolerates exploitation. This is not a God who normalizes abuse. And for a poor people like Israel to know that there is a sovereign God watching over them who does not approve of that behavior, that's going to instill a sense of trust. A sixth marker is that the salvation event also demonstrates God's competence to rule sovereignly and securely as Lord. When we look at the entire storied process of how God dealt with Pharaoh in Egypt, there is structure all around how it happened or unfolded, or there is strategy at work. There is there's structure and strategy, strategy uh, to how God gives instructions to Moses and Aaron and when to go to Pharaoh and exactly uh, telling them exactly what to do, what to say, how to act, and then how it's all going to play out. And then later when they march out, even when everything is falling apart and the people are afraid and they're at the Red Sea and the soldiers and the chariots are bearing down on them and it looks like they're pinned in and suddenly God gives direction to move in towards the sea and then it opens and they cross and the Egyptians are drowned. When you look at this whole story, you see a God who knows what he is doing. You see a God who is orchestrating this entire event. You see a God who is not rattled by the chaos, a God who does not shrink away or fall apart by the things that are scaring everybody else. And so you see a God who is competent to rule, competent to lead, competent to direct, competent to provide security, competent to be the God they need. And so I guess when you're able to see and understand God's competence, that instills a sense of peace and trust. And so finally, a seventh marker. This salvation event reveals God's compassion as motivation of his great saving work. Now, like I said other, uh, earlier, the way that the other gods or the other deities act, their behavior is self-indulgent. Their characters are to just exploit the whims of whoever makes the best offering. And it's, <laughs> it's kind of as if the patron deities are just a mirror reflection of the fickle humans that cater to them. And Pharaoh as well. He's just indifferent to everything. He is willing to wield his cruelty in whatever direction that preserves his self-importance, no matter who gets hurt. But when you see how God is acting, he could... He, God doesn't have to act like this. He doesn't have to make a covenant with Abraham. He doesn't have to keep that covenant 
for 500 years. God doesn't have to step in and rescue these know-nothing people. And God doesn't have to go to great lengths to force Pharaoh's hand and to deliver Egypt. And God doesn't have to save them through the Red Sea. But God does. And what that shows us is that God allows himself to be moved. That God is able to have an emotional connection with people. That God is able to empathize with people and to feel their pain. That God is able to see their turmoil and see everything that they are they are experiencing, and that God is able to feel it, understand it, and God is willing to step in and do something about it. God is able to feel our pain deep in his heart. And unlike the other deities and unlike the rulers, God is able to exert his mighty power to bring us the relief that he knows we need. And all of this just adds up to show us that God is compassionate. So let's quickly review these seven markers. There is uh, God's commitment to the covenant. There's God's commitment to the community. There is God's commitment to continuing the story. There is God's unique character. And there's God's good, just, conquering judgment upon evil. And then there's God's competency to rule. And finally, there's God's compassion. And all of this just adds up to show us a God who is trustworthy, that we are able to trust God, that we are able to relax and are able to acknowledge that the Lord is God, that this is the God to whom we can entrust ourselves, entrust our lives, entrust our families, entrust our faiths, entrust our decisions, and entrust our worries and our anxieties and our uncertainties. So as we finish up this episode for the day, a question that I think that the text lays down before you and I and asks is, are you able to trust this God? Do you find this God trustworthy? And I think that one of the, I've kind of mentioned this uh, in an earlier episode, but I think one of the struggles that I've always had when trusting God is that um, I'm trying to figure God out. Or not so much figure God out, but uh, I'm trying to really just wrestle with the concept. I'm trying to wrestle the concept to the ground. I tend to... I tend to be a very analytical person and in some ways that I, that's a strength I feel, but it can also easily turn into kind of a, a counterproductive hyperfixation where I'm trying to figure out the concept of trust, trusting God. And 
Uh, I'm trying to go through all the ideas that are connected to that concept, like the language of, of God's will, you know, like there's like, you know, sovereign will, revealed will, perfect will, you know. And there's all this tension sometimes between being responsible and then trying to, you know, let go and let God and all that. And so it's like the... It's like there's just a whole lot of systematic chaos that comes into it. And it just kind of frustrates my ability to even know God. But one of the things that I think I've recently come to realize or better appreciate really is that you don't trust a concept. You trust a person. This person. This God. And so... I just want to ask you, based on everything that has been laid out there, or laid out here today, are you able to trust this God? Do you find this God trustworthy? And then from there, the question is, will you trust this God? And that sets us up for the next episode. So I thank you for joining me today. I've enjoyed spending this time with you. The name of the podcast is Wayward. Where there's a way, I'm sorry, correction. Where there's a word, there's a way. Put another way, where there is a trustworthy God, there is an invitation and inability to trust. Goodbye.